Avoiding potential problem patients in cosmetic surgery its a concern many of us face on a daily basis, reminding us of the importance of patient selection and informed consent. How can we minimize the number of problem patients in our practice? And how can we limit the impact of those who are already in our practice? You are listening to Reach MDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Michael Epstein, board-certified plastic surgeon. Our guest is Dr. Peter Adamson, professor of otolaryngology head and neck surgery and head of facial plastic and reconstructive surgery at the University of Toronto. Dr. Adamson is recognized as an international leader in facial plastic surgery. Welcome, Dr. Adamson. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, how often are you seeing this particular type of patient walk in your office? Well, I think patients who require some type of psychological support or at least further diagnostic assessment before proceeding probably would come down to one in five or one in six patients that you see for elective surgery for one reason or another. That's a fairly high number, so this is a pretty significant problem. How often does the actual thought of turning a patient away come into play when you're seeing a patient? It comes into play with every patient, in fact, as we try to determine whether they're going to be a good candidate or not. So what I like to look at, and each patient I ask myself this, first of all, do they have a physical complaint that is real or objective from my perspective? Is their expectation, and we have to talk about this, of course, and review their images, is their expectation for improvement objectively possible? And is it possible within your hands? That is, you don't say, well, I know somebody else down the street or what I saw in a textbook can get that result. Can I achieve that result? That's the first thing. And then you need to say to yourself, if I can achieve that specific objective result for the patient, will that give them the subjective sense of satisfaction that they're seeking? Because after all, nobody really wants surgery. They're only willing to go through the surgical experience, which they don't wish to do, but to achieve that result, which is going to give them an improved quality of life, decrease any sense of anxiety or concern about that body part, which they're not happy with. The next thing you say, are they medically a good candidate? You know, no significant heart disease, diabetes, immune diseases, etc. So just as you would for any preoperative assessment, they must pass that hurdle. And then the final hurdle is, are they psychologically, you know, sound and stable? Now, the reality is that everybody has certain personality characteristics. Many people have, you know, mild neuroses or what have you. These kinds of individuals, of course, can be managed quite satisfactorily as part of everyday medicine for all of us. But we really need to be aware of those patients who have a chronic history of psychological or psychiatric issues or very deep-seated issues which you think you cannot manage. And in those patients, I'll certainly want to speak to a psychiatrist if they're seeing one to confirm they're all right or sometimes a way I can translate out of having to operate on them is to say, if we're going to achieve the best result for you, it's important that I know that you're a good candidate psychologically. I would like you to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist to make sure that that's the situation. If they turn me down on that, then I say I'm not prepared to proceed without doing that. So again, I think that probably 
5 or 10% of patients we might turn down for true physical reasons. This is particularly in revision rhinoplasty. We just aren't going to be able to achieve much more for them, or maybe 5%, 10 at the very outside, depending on the given day, for psychological reasons, they're not going to be a good candidate. So you would say essentially the reverse of those, or if they fulfill those requirements, they would be a good candidate for surgery. Yes, and some better than others. The ideal candidate has a very specific complaint. It's bothered them for a long time. It's quite easily correctable surgically. They have a very specific psychological result to expect. I just want it a little bit better. They're not expecting perfection. They're willing to accept a little bit of risk and assume responsibility that it's a mutual decision. It's not all the surgeon's responsibility. And they're physically healthy. Then a patient like that, you can make a decision very quickly. And of course, the other end of the spectrum is the patient who has none of those ideal features about their situation. Just to be clear, you're not saying that an absolute contraindication would be somebody that has a psychological history No, absolutely not, because let's face it, many, many people in society today do. So, in fact, some patients who've had a psychological history, let's say in particular, for example, depression or maybe it's an anxiety neurosis, if they have a comprehension of it and they understand where they're coming from, you know, it's the 2 plus 2 equals 4 doctor, but it bugs me, then as long as you review everything with them and they understand and perhaps they have their family doctor or psychiatrist support to get through, they can be great patients. But it's more the person who's not reality-based or substantial personality disorders. That's where we get into more difficult issues, and we really want to try to avoid them if we can. Well, Dr. Adamson, why don't we take this opportunity to just go through a couple of examples of problem patients? Sure. Well, there's a couple of interesting ones we see. One uh, we call, and these are just terms that we've put together to help us understand these people, I call it the package of pictures syndrome. And this is much more with women than with men, although with men occasionally too. And they'll come in with cutouts from various magazines and they show a whole host of photographs of the kinds of nose, for example, they'd like or the kind of jawline they'd like to have. And also they'll sometimes bring in, especially when it's aging face surgery, they'll bring in a picture of their wedding day and they'll show them in their wedding dress. And I don't know why, but it's just something that seems to happen. And they would like to have that kind of look. So I take a step back and say, I know you'd like to have that kind of look, but your facial features are different from the people in those magazines. They're obviously always, of course, beautiful models, and we really can't achieve that for you. Or I'll explain that, yes, we can improve your facial appearance 5, 10, or 12 years, what have you, with facial rejuvenation surgery, but we can't get you back to your wedding picture. Now, some people are pretty good. Once you explain things, they say, oh, well, I understand now, but this was just my ideal, and, and I accept that, and if you can just make it you know, a little bit better here or there, that's okay with me. Those patients are okay, and I'll pass them, and we can move forward to surgery. But once in a while, a patient will keep coming back to it. They'll keep taking the picture out later, say, well, you know, well, why can't you get this? Or what's the problem with that? And if they don't get it, then they're not going to be a candidate for surgery. Another one that's a little bit newer, I think, of a syndrome is something I call the My Theory Syndrome. And of course, today, all of our patients have wonderful access to the web, which has, of course, become the medical library of last resort for many people. 
And so I'm sure if anyone's listening who does this kind of work, they'll chuckle when they hear this because they've all had these patients who come in and they'll say, well, doctor, particularly for rhinoplasty, I'd like to have this or that done. And, you know, I know that I need a spreader graft up here. And, you know, are you going to use a, a columnar or strut? Or uh, how about a vertical division of the cartilages? I read that that's good and I think that's what I need. Now, if you take a step back and again you explain to these people why their nose is different or they come in for example they might say have said the same kinds of things about I need a mid facelift or I want a mini facelift and and not a smaz lift they'll use all these medical surgical terms if you take a step back and explain to them how they're a little bit different and how you do it this way and this is what they can achieve and if they can accept all that and they seem to come around and they're just shall we say, a little misguided, they may be a candidate. But if they keep coming back to it and sort of insisting that this is what they need and drawing on these photographs, then that's an absolute contraindication for me, at least, to move ahead uh, with them. So those are perhaps two of the more interesting ones we see today. Sure. you got to be aware of those. If you have just joined us, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. I am your host, Dr. Michael Epstein. Our guest today is Dr. Peter Adamson, professor of otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, and head of facial plastic and reconstructive surgery at the University of Toronto. Dr. Adamson, we were just identifying a couple of typical problem patients, and you were talking about that package of picture syndrome. That brings me to sort of an interesting thing that I see and actually utilize in my patients. I was wondering if you utilize digital imaging to help sort of decipher whether or not these patients can be problematic in any way. The answer to that is yes and no. What I actually prefer to do is we do use digital photographs, but I actually prefer to get the photographs out, and perhaps I'm a bit old-fashioned in this, but I know some of my colleagues still do this too, and I use a light box and then draw on the photographs. And so you can do it with a mouse, or I feel I can do it nicely with a pencil, which is perhaps a little bit more artistic, shall we say, rather than mechanical. But I think it does help. Now, that brings up you know, an interesting point of conversation. There certainly are some you know, nice studies in the literature that say that you know, computer imaging does help the patient determine whether they're going to like a certain result or not. And I think that, in general, that's true. But I would offer that, in my experience, I'm concerned about a patient who feels that they must have a specific drawing or a picture that shows them exactly what they're going to look like with their jowls improved or the puffy lids removed or you know what the nose is going to look like on profile with the bump removed. I think we all recognize that our goal is to get as close as we can to an ideal result for that patient, but no surgeon, whether it's on a computer or a drawing or whatever, can say this is exactly what your result is going to be like. And I think that if a patient is unable to accept a certain degree of variability, if they're not able to accept that the goal is really a good improvement to lower the bump or refine the tip or a good improvement to take away that baggy look under the eyes or the saggy eyelid skin or the jowls, if they can't accept that, yes, a good improvement's okay for them, if they've got to see that really specific result, I think that's a very substantial red flag that they may be too perfectionistic, obsessive-compulsive, narcissistic, depending upon several different personality types that can lead to that. But I think that they have a much higher incidence of patient dissatisfaction postoperatively. Absolutely. Let's pretend now that we have a difficult patient. Let's say you've identified one in the office before surgery, and then maybe we'll even get into you know how you would manage a patient that you've sort of missed on, and they become difficult. You know, they don't see eye to eye with you after surgery. Yes. 
if I do feel that a patient is not going to be a good candidate, then there's two situations that may arise there. The first one is you explain everything to the patient, stressing that your goal is only to use the surgery or some other medical treatment, whether it's laser or whatever you're doing, to make them better, and you don't feel you can achieve a good objective result for them. They accept that, and they you know, leave happily. Or maybe it is a psychological issue and you explain why you feel that because of their depression or they expect so much that you won't be able to achieve that. And again, they're reasonably happy. Then there's the other one, though, that you're trying to tell them that you don't think they're a good candidate and they keep insisting that they want to go ahead. Well, I'm sure you can do it, doctor, or I'm willing to take that risk but you, the surgeon, are feeling very uncomfortable about proceeding. These patients can consume an incredible amount of time in your office, and sometimes it's very difficult to even get them out the door. So I will listen to them, talk to them, and then my approach is to say, listen, I would like to review your chart. I'd like to review the photographs we've talked about today in our discussion, and then I'll get back to you and let you know whether or not I feel we can proceed or not. And that way I can bring that consultation to a close. And then I will send them a letter by registered mail saying a very nice letter saying I've reviewed everything, but in my hands, I don't feel that I can achieve what they wish and I'm not willing to proceed and that's it. I will go further. I think we have an obligation. If you truly believe that it's not in their best interests to have some other surgeon do it, we all know that anybody can knock on enough doors, any patient, and they'll get some surgeon to do something. But if you're really convinced that it's not in their best interest to have further surgery, then I always say that and I'll say, I know you may elect to see someone else and they may recommend proceeding, but this would not be my recommendation. Or if you do proceed and have a satisfactory result, I will be very pleased for you, but I do believe that the potential for that occurring is much less than the potential for your being dissatisfied. And this is how I present it to them and hopefully then we're done. So that sort of deals with the patient beforehand. Afterwards, I think the most important thing, if the patient's unhappy, is be honest. And you've got to be honest with yourself, and then you've got to be honest with the patient. And that means becoming partners with them, getting them back more often than not. If you feel that you might be able to improve something surgically or some other treatment, then you tell them so, and you tell them exactly how you will follow them. You may not know exactly what's going to happen, but the timeline. If you feel there's nothing that can be done, then I'm honest, and I'll say, I understand you're unhappy. I accept that you're unhappy. Please understand, I feel the result is reasonable, and I'm not recommending any further surgery. If you'd like me to refer you to someone for another opinion, I'm glad to do that. So, in essence, always leave the patient with their own self-respect and do whatever you can to help them. Just you have to agree to disagree about what their assumption of the result is and your assumption of the result. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Peter Adamson. We've been discussing key issues in patient selection for plastic surgeons. I am Dr. Michael Epstein. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at ReachMD.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please call us toll-free at 888-MDXM157. And thank you for listening.